what a Christian is. Who are these people who are called by this name? What is this identity of a Christian? And then secondly, flowing out of that and following from it, what does a Christian do? And that has to be second because you cannot understand what a Christian does without first understanding what a Christian is. Nevertheless, what a Christian does. And then finally, what a Christian knows. And this is that which helps and enables us to endure that suffering. Believing I am a Christian, what a Christian is, what a Christian does, and what a Christian knows. Now, a lot of people assume that they know what a Christian is, but really they do not. They assume, perhaps, that a Christian is somebody who goes to church. And outwardly, that would seem to be the main identifier of a Christian. Somebody who goes to church. And there is something important about that. The church is where Christ and His body is found, and any true Christian will be drawn to the church. A Christian who is a Christian indeed will hunger for the communion of saints and will not forsake the assembling together with God's people on the Lord's day. You cannot stay away from the church on a permanent basis and still claim to be a Christian. And yet it is possible to go to church for other reasons that are not Christian. And it is possible for there to be members of a church outwardly who are not Christians. They have a profession of faith, but their profession of faith is an elaborately crafted mask used to deceive others, perhaps even to deceive themselves for a time until something happens in their life and they decide they really prefer to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season rather than to endure suffering with the people of God. And no amount of persuasion or teaching or discipline will move them because they are not really Christians and never really were Christians. As John says in 1 John 2 verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be manifested that they were not all of us. Others assume that a Christian is someone who always and only does the right thing. And once again, there's an element of truth here. A Christian should be someone who is marked by the desire to do what is right and the resolve to do what is right. A Christian should be as light in a dark world who is marked by the life of heaven. A Christian should be someone who is known to be reliable, someone who is known to be trustworthy, someone who you can turn to to find help in a difficult situation, someone who does not laugh at the things that the world laughs at, someone who does not do the things that the world does. But it is nevertheless a devastating error to identify a Christian merely based on what he does or does not do. That is how you end up with ranking systems in the church. 
Well, those over there, those people are the super Christians. Those are the ones who are really living the life of the Christian. And those ones over there, they're not. Or that's how you end up with legalism and Phariseeism. Where mere men assume the prerogatives of God and end up judging their brothers. Or it's how you end up jaded and cynical so that you look out over the church and you say, look at all these supposed Christians who are supposed to be so good and so righteous, but they're all just sinners. Look at what they do. Look at how they live. They're just like the rest of us, hypocrites. But of course, this all arises out of a false assumption about what a Christian is. A Christian is not just somebody who goes to church, although church is important to a Christian. And a church is not a Christian is not just somebody who does the right thing, although doing the right thing is important to the Christian. But what is a Christian? A Christian is someone who is a member of Christ by faith and a partaker of his anointing. And in a sense, we could say right there, period. End of story. A Christian is someone who is a member of Christ by faith and thus a partaker of his anointing. Yes, a Christian will go to church or if he is not able to make it to church on Sunday, he will have a fierce longing to be in church, but it's not his presence in church that makes him a Christian. Yes, a Christian will live a new kind of life that seeks righteousness, loves mercy, and walks humbly with his God. But it's not the life he lives, first of all, that makes him a Christian. What makes him a Christian is that he is united to Jesus Christ. He has a spiritual union to Christ so strong and so deep that he is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. The life of Jesus Christ is therefore in him, in her, having penetrated deep into the inner man by an act of the Spirit. And he is made alive unto God, whereas before he was only dead. So that now by a true and living faith, an active faith, he strikes his roots deep into Christ and draws his life out of him. He's crucified with Christ and raised with Christ so that now, that he's, now he says, the life that I live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, and because he is so closely united with Jesus Christ, he also becomes partaker of his anointing. That anointing, which is the pouring on the head of the oil, which we saw last week was in the Old Testament, literal oil that was poured on the head of Aaron and on David and on the Old Testament office bearers. But in Christ was the living spirit that was poured out upon him. And that spirit that was poured out on the head also runs down the beard down the robes, down to the fingers and to the toes, down to the members of the body, from the greatest of them to the smallest of them. So that the whole Christ is anointed, head and body.
And notice, we're still not talking about anything that the Christian does yet. This has to do with identity. To ask the question, why am I called a Christian, is to ask about your identity. And the answer is, to be called a Christian is to have your identity in Jesus Christ. It is to be united unto him. It is to be consecrated to service by him, by his spirit. And that identity is true. It exists. It is a fundamental part of who you are before you ever lift a finger, before you ever do anything, before you ever open your mouth and say a word. It's something that God does to you. Just like it was God the Father who eternally ordained his son, Jesus Christ, and anointed him with the Spirit, saying to the whole world, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So the same God the Father sets aside those whom he has eternally chosen in love before the foundation of the world, to be united unto his Son, to be bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, partakers of his anointing. And he puts them into contact with Christ through the life-giving Spirit. That, beloved, is what a Christian is. Which is why we can say that even a little child of believing parents is a Christian. Because even a little child of believers can be and often is united to Jesus Christ by faith through an act of God. And becomes partaker of his anointing, of his righteousness, of his life. And that, beloved, is why we mustn't ultimately answer this question by referring to our actions. We think that way, don't we? It's like our default way of thinking. Am I a Christian, we ask? Am I really a Christian? Maybe somebody has put that question to you before. Are you really a Christian? And our default way of answering a question like that is this. Well, I don't know. Do I pray enough? Do I read my Bible enough? Am I zealous enough? I don't know. Am I a Christian? Or say it the other way, oh, yes, I love to be in prayer. I love to read my Bible. I love these things. Of course I'm a Christian. Look at all the things that I do. Now, of course, those are all important things. We need to examine ourselves about prayer, about reading of Scripture. And those things may serve as helpful diagnostic tools so I can understand how I'm doing in my spiritual growth and in my spiritual life, but they do not answer the question, am I a Christian? That question can only be answered by faith. Do you believe? Do you believe that your sins are indeed sinful, inexcusable, offensive to the majesty of God, worthy of his judgment? Do you believe that? 
Do you believe that however offensive those sins are, that nevertheless they have been forgiven by Jesus Christ? Out of your faith, is there a resolution now to fight against sin and spiritual weakness in your life and to walk in a new and godly life? Do you believe? Then you are a Christian. And don't let anybody ever tell you otherwise. Faith is enough. Now, if we do know what a Christian is, we're in a better place to know what a Christian is not. And this Lord's Day is very helpful in this regard. Putting the two matters side by side, Christ and His anointing, and the Christian and His anointing, or her anointing. For what a Christian is not is Christ. Nor is he ever called to be Christ. It was a bit shocking in our recent controversy in our churches when a man made the following statement. He said, you cannot identify me closely enough with Jesus Christ. I am Christ, he said, and Christ is me. Now, rightly, we react against a statement like that and we condemn it as an overstatement and really as a blasphemy. It fails to distinguish between the vine, Christ, and the branches, the Christians. And yet, practically speaking, beloved, this is the often, often the way we approach our Christian life, is it not? And this is often the way we think, is it not? We would never say it, but we act that way. I'm Christ. It's up to me. It's my responsibility. Isn't that true, parents? When it comes to the goals and the desires that you have for your children, you act as though you have sovereignty over their hearts. And you try to save them. And when they end up walking away from the church, perhaps, one day, as sometimes happens. Or falling into some grievous sin. You start to play this game with yourself. Well, if only I had done this. If only I had done that. I could have prevented this from happening. I could have saved my child. I could have saved my son or my daughter. Now, I realize there's always room for self-examination. We can always be better as parents. But there is a fine line, isn't there? 
And don't we often cross it? And we assume such responsibility for our children that really what we're trying to do is to be Christ to them, to save them. No, that's not who you are. You are not Christ. Or maybe we find that there are problems in the church. The members of the church aren't acting as Christians ought to act. There are sins being committed, and these sins are being missed by church discipline. There are misunderstandings of certain teachings in the Bible about doctrine or about life. And of course, there ought to be, and there are ways for concerned believers to address these things. Problems in the church. You have an unction from the Holy One, John says, and you know all things. You are full of goodness, able to admonish one another, Paul says in Romans 15. But here too, sometimes there's a line, a fine line, and we cross it. And instead of acting out of faith in Christ, we end up saying, or thinking more likely, this is all up to me. It's all up to me. I have to fix it. Or it's all up to me and my crowd. It's all up to me and the people who are like me, the people who see it, the people who get it. And pretty soon you have a church that's full of activism and factions and groups of people who are in the know. Because these people no longer are functioning as Christians. They're trying to function as the Christ. And we must never do that, beloved. That's a recipe for disaster. It is how the church is destroyed. Destroyed maybe with a veneer of piety. For everyone who imagines himself to be a kind of Christ also imagines always that his cause is righteous and there's nothing that you can do to such a one to disabuse him of such a notion. Just like the Pharisees, how can you heal somebody? How can you heal somebody who does not believe he is sick? How can you humble someone whose heart has lifted him up to the skies? Beloved, we must remember who we are. There is only one Christ, and he's not you. Thank God for that. Thank God for that, for your sake and for my sake and for all our sakes, that you are not him and that I am not him, but that rather we are members of Christ by faith and partakers of his anointing, that we are Christians, that we will gladly own. That's who we are. And only when we have settled this, and only when we understand this, should we ever dare to lift our finger to do anything in the church. What a Christian does, of course, follows from what he is or what she is. A Christian is a partaker of the anointing of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is anointed according to question and answer 31. And he is anointed to be our chief prophet and teacher. 
who reveals to us the will of God concerning our redemption. And he is anointed to be our only high priest who with the one sacrifice of his body redeems us. And he is anointed to be our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation that he has earned for us. Christ is anointed to be our prophet, priest, and king. So if we are partakers of that anointing as Christians, it follows that we also will function as prophets. And we also will function as priests. And we also will function as kings. Which is why we say that Christians, like Christ, are prophets, priests, and kings. Prophets, priests, and kings who follow the chief prophet, the only high priest, and the eternal king who is Christ. Let's look a bit more specifically at each of these three functions of the Christian then that define for us all of the nature of the Christian's activity. I'm a member of Christ by faith, so that as a prophet now, I may confess his name, the Lord's Day says. Now notice, you Christians have the right and the ability to speak. You are prophets. Your pastor who has been called in a special way to explain and apply the scriptures is not the only prophet in this room. These little children are also prophets and prophetesses. And every time these little children recite their catechism verses or sing a psalm, they're prophesying. They're speaking by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Which is why the psalmist says, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained praise, strength to still the enemy and the avenger. As Christians, you have the right and the ability to speak. But your right and your ability to speak, you must understand, is always bound up in the name of Christ. If any man or woman or child, Peter says, speaks, Let him speak as the oracles of God, verse 11. Which is to say, you do not have the right to say just whatever you're thinking. You do not have the right to boldly proclaim whatever you want to say or whatever is on your mind and claim that this is prophecy. No, you speak of him. You speak of what he has done for you. You speak of his mighty works, his mighty ways. You speak of his glory. That is what a Christian does. He looks up unto Christ and knowing him, believing in him, partaking of his anointing, speaks, prophesies. What a glorious Christ. Look at him. Do you see him? Do you want to know him? And he presents himself also as a living sacrifice of thanksgiving, as a priest. Notice, you Christians, you have the right And the ability to make sacrifices. Don't say to yourself that sacrifices only happen in the Old Testament. No, you are New Testament priests. 
And you make New Testament sacrifices, and the sacrifices that you make are the sacrifices of prayer. Even as the end of all things draws near, and as the end of all things draws near, the wicked world turns all of its time and attention to wickedness, to lasciviousness, to revelries, to banquetings. You spend your time watching and praying with a sober mind and a sober heart. And your sacrifices are the sacrifices of your resources, of your time, of your energy, of your skills, by showing charity, that is, Christian love to your brother. You sacrifice your right to get satisfaction when you are sinned against by forgiving your neighbor. For charity, Peter says in verse 8, shall cover the multitude of sins. You sacrifice the pleasures of continuing to do the things of your past life when you also did the will of the Gentiles and walked in lasciviousness and lusts and excess of wine and revelings and banquetings and abominable idolatries. You give that up. Oh, but maybe you say, no, I, I can't do that. I can't. It's too hard. That old life of sin with its patterns is too ingrained in my soul for me to give it up. That feeling of power that I have that comes from refusing to forgive is too gratifying to let it go. My time and my resources are too precious for me to give them away to other needy people. I, I can't. I can't do it. But Jesus says, no, you can, you can. According to the ability which God gives you, you can, for you are a priest. And priests make sacrifices. He also fights against sin and against the devil, the Christian does. You Christians have the right and the ability to go to war. You're a soldier. And you're more than a soldier. You're a king. Are you going to just lay down? Are you just going to let the powers of death and hell roll over you? Are you going to drop your sword? The sword that Jesus put in your hand? Are you going to say it's too hard? I can't fight against the flesh. It's too difficult. It's too painful. No, because you're a Christian. And as a Christian, you're a king. And you know that anything you suffer in the battle that you fight is nothing compared to the suffering that your eternal king endured for you first. As he forged the way to victory for all who are called by his name. That's the first verse. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. And you can carry on in this fight, for it is a war that you wage in hope, hope that one day you will reign with Christ. 
and rule with him over all creatures. And so you sing. As a Christian, you sing, lead on, O King Eternal. The day of march has come henceforth in fields of conquest. Your tents shall be our home. Through days of preparation, your grace has made us strong. And now, O King Eternal, we lift our battle song. Notice then, beloved, what we are really saying here. If you could sum it all up. If you could sum up everything that a Christian does and put it in one word, you would have to say, he suffers. In this life, he suffers. And he doesn't just suffer like all men suffer. All men suffer. And many of the sufferings we experience in life as Christians are not unique to us as Christians. All men are subject to diseases. All men are subject to chronic conditions. All men get old and eventually they die. All men have problems in their families. All men experience disappointments and the vanity of this life in a cursed and fallen world. All men suffer the consequences of their own sins, of their own foolishness, which is why Peter points out that there is nothing honorable in suffering all by itself. In verse 15, if you suffer because you are a murderer, or if you suffer because you are a thief, or if you suffer because you are a meddler and a gossip who is always involving yourself in things that don't concern you, don't try to cast this as if it's some sort of cross-bearing or as if this is some sort of Christian suffering, because it's not. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed. In fact, let him glorify God in this behalf. There's something unique and exclusive about suffering as a Christian. It is a suffering that happens to him exactly because he is united to Christ by faith. And thus is a partaker of his anointing. It is the kind of suffering, in other words, that will never be tolerated by someone who is not a Christian. Even if the person says he is a Christian, he will drop the name. When this kind of suffering enters into his life or her life, he will say it's too hard. He will say, this is not what I signed up for. And what such a person is really saying is I'm not a Christian, and that is why I do not want to do what a Christian does, which is to suffer. But a Christian will suffer. And his suffering will have everything to do with those three functions that he carries out. If you speak as the oracles of God, beloved, truly speak as the oracles of God, men will hate you. They will. They will be offended that you dare suggest that they might be living in sin and are guilty before God. They will call you goody-goody. They will dismiss you as a Christian. 
by which they mean a member of that strange sect, those followers of Christ. If you present your whole life as a sacrifice of thankfulness to God, men will write you off as some kind of zealot. They will. Look at those Christians. Always so sober. Always so serious. Always in prayer. Always talking about the end of the world. Why can't they just spend their time doing something useful instead of reading their Bibles and talking about God all of the time? And especially, beloved, especially if you arm yourself with the mind of Christ and you have even the hint of a militant spirit about your faith so that you live in such a way that it is clear that you count all things as loss and dung if you have not Christ, then men will say that you are a bigot. They will say that you are a hater. How dare you? How dare you try to impose your truth over my truth? But now, beloved, the whole point of the Apostle Peter is you must not be surprised when this is the case, nor must you be afraid, nor must you hold yourself up in a bunker and refuse to interact with other people in the world around you. No, you are a Christian. And this is what Christians do. They suffer. They bear a cross. They fight the good fight of faith. Beloved, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as if some strange thing happened to you? What did you expect was going to happen if you identified yourself with the Christ of God? Did you think that if you followed the crucified Jesus that that would not lead you to a cross yourself? Did you think that the people who hate your master, who call him a liar and a fool and a fraud, Did you think that those people are going to embrace you and love you? No. Beloved, you're a Christian. And if you are a Christian, you will suffer as a Christian because that is what Christians do. But they do all of this with a certain knowledge. And what a Christian knows, first of all, is that none of his suffering ultimately can harm him. The Christian, in fact, is much safer in the end than those who mock him and cause him to suffer. For the Christian suffers for the name of Jesus Christ, that is, for the person who holds all power in heaven and in earth. The Christian suffers for the very person before whom every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Christian suffers for the very person who was crucified in order to to earn and establish eternal salvation and life for everyone who is united to him by a true faith. And that Christ will defend his people. That Christ will stand up for everyone who suffers for his name. I said at the beginning, it's a dangerous thing to be called a Christian. And that's especially true if you are only called a Christian. 
and are not really united to Christ by faith or partaker of his anointing, because then you are an enemy. And when judgment begins at the house of God and you are found out to be ungodly and righteous, what shall your end be? What shall the end of the hypocrite be? What shall the end of the fake Christian be? It will be everlasting destruction under the fierce and almighty wrath of God. The way that Judas Iscariot was dashed to pieces on the rocks. But the Christian who suffers for his Lord, the Christian shall be saved. He may be saved scarcely, which means that he will be saved by the skin of his teeth, despite the fact that all his life long he had to wage war against the cravings of his flesh, despite the fact that even if he is a very strong Christian, he is nevertheless weak and quavers and trembles over the prospect of suffering. We do, beloved, we do. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to die. Yet the Christian will do it. He'll walk through the trial and grace will hold him up and he will be saved. He's much safer. Much safer than the people who try to cast him out. Much safer than those who try to make him drop the cross that he's bearing. They will have to contend with God Almighty. They will have to contend with the sharp sword of judgment. But the Christian knows on that day, I'm safe. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. And the Christian knows this too. It will be worth it. That's why Peter says, if you're called to suffer, don't think it's strange, but rather glorify God in this behalf. Now that seems like a strange thing to say. Why would I glorify God if I have to suffer? Wouldn't it be more natural to curse God? Wouldn't it be more natural to renounce the name of this person who is always causing me such misery in life whenever I speak up for him? But the answer is no. Glorify God in this behalf. Praise him. Thank him for the suffering. Do you believe that? Why? Because when the Lord allows you to suffer, he's giving you an opportunity to know just how powerful his grace and truth really is. Just how superior he is to all of the lies, to all the vanity and the sin of this world. Sin always promises everything and it delivers nothing. God in his grace delivers the joy of everlasting life to everyone who knows him and calls upon him. And that joy is so powerful that its flame cannot be reduced even by the suffering that a Christian must endure in this life. The suffering only makes the Christian long for it the more. It only makes him dig deeper 
into Christ, into the riches of the gospel to find strength, to press on, to continue fighting, to run. And the Christian knows when all the sufferings of this life are over, it's not going to be overlooked. Jesus isn't standing there casually by the side as his people suffer reproach and insults for his name. No, he takes an interest, an abiding interest. And when you enter into life, having suffered for a while, he will recognize it, beloved. He will recognize it and he will reward it. He will And know that reward isn't a reward of silver and gold. It's not a reward that you can quantify. The reward will be greater than that. It's the joy of heaven, beloved. A full cup, a cup overflowing. With the blessedness of God and life eternal. You will reign with Him as a king, as a queen over all His creatures. Beloved, rejoice. Press on. Don't be discouraged. You will find after you have suffered for a while it was worth it. It was worth it. All the shame, all the insults, all the mockery, even the pain of death itself, if that's his will for you. Death under the hands of wicked men. It will be worth it. There's nothing more wonderful, beloved. Dangerous to be called a Christian, but nothing more wonderful. To be united to Jesus Christ by faith and to be a partaker of His anointing. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray, give us to know who we are and not to desire anything other than to be who we are in Christ. And then being settled, O Father, in that identity that is ours and that belongs even to the littlest of us. Give us the will, the desire, the urgency to live as prophets, priests, and kings under Him and even to suffer for His sake. And give us the hope, O Father, the hope that enables us to press on, to despise the shame, to follow the lead of our Savior, to go outside the camp, and to prefer suffering with Thy people for a time rather than the pleasures of sin for a season. 
Forgive us when we have been weak. Rebuke us, O Father, if we need to be rebuked. Instruct us and lead us in the way of life eternal. And hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.